to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and cover power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's It means something. It means something. You know, that's my take on it. Wait, what's yours? Protonic reversal! That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed it is. It's a science thing. It's a science place. It's a scientific fact. We are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only... Protonic reversal. Welcome to it yet again, especially for folks that have already been listening. Uh, but for those that haven't, welcome. Just generally welcome. You know, just generally, generally welcome. You are generally welcome at the home of the Protonic Reversal. Next hour, we got a great guest, Mr. Stephen McDonald of Red Cross off Melvin's. I mean, Jesus Christ, what has this guy not done, right? Uh, cool guy. Really looking forward to that. Should be awesome times. Thanks to everyone for listening to the Steve Albini episode. Love that, dude. Radioneutron.com for all these archives. There's like a Patreon thing now if you haven't tuned in in a while, or in some cases, some folks have never tuned in. If you want the episode sooner, dollar a month will get you there. Dollar a month. $12 a year, get the episodes basically as soon as they're done. So on that, just be aware. It's not compulsory. You'll still get them. You'll get them when you get them. If you're listening live, great. That's free. You'll get them on the free feed. It's just, you know, it's going to take a while. Uh, anyway, going to play some tunes. Looking forward to talking to Mr. McDonald. Got a lot of stuff to talk about. Should be rad. Okay, here we go.
So that's Beyond the Door, the title track on the most recent Red Cross record, also called Beyond the Door. And on the phone right now, we have uh, none other than uh, Mr. Stephen McDonald. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good. You you, you enjoying that quarantine life? Sure. <laughs> How's, I think you were meant to be on tour right now, right? Um, yeah, it's just to be doing the first date of our European tour it would have been in um, Amsterdam. Yeah, that would that would have been cool. But I think we're going to reschedule. But we're but we're rescheduling. So hopefully, come fall time, we'll be able to do those shows. Good, glad to hear it. Uh, so this yeah. is the the one I just played. I played a kind of an older song, and I, I played the title track off of the new one. This is uh, the first one with Dale playing drums. It right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the first record that Dale played with us. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that uh, there's a Sparks cover on there because that's one of my favorite okay. bands of all time. Cool, you're a Sparks fan. I did. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about it, but I'm actually surprised I haven't pestered you about that before. Uh, because yeah, they're yeah. they're they're like one of my favorites of all time. But I so the song is "When Do We Get Sing My Way," which I think is a really cool tune in, in a lesser known era of sparks like most people kind of know like the more glammy stuff you know you're you know the, the uh this town ain't big enough for the both of us that kind of stuff but like really really cool version of it like good vibe oh well thank you yeah well you know sparks are you know they're amazing and um but that song you know i think that song was kind of a hit in england or, or France or something. Right. Or actually, I think that song was a hit in Germany. That's what the deal was. <laughs> of, course, of course it was. And, uh, <laughs> so in the mid-90s. Mid and, um, you know, those guys have always been interested in uh, forging new ground. And, you know, they're not ones to rest on their laurels. So they would often try their hand at um, different genres of pop of rock music i guess and so some of that some of their leaps creatively would sometimes alienate you know us um us rocker types i think and so maybe if i hadn't have played with sparks i probably would have never noticed the song when do i get to sing my way because it was recorded in like a sort of a 90s um, dance music style um, which is really not the obvious genre in my world. It wouldn't be the first thing you think of, yeah. No, and so, I mean, you know, so as we were saying, like lesser, I, I wouldn't really say it's a lesser known song, it's just lesser known in, in our world, because I think the fact that the original track sounded sort of like the Lost Pet Shop Boys song sort of takes it out of the... Um, the, you know, it takes it out of the um, playlist for most of us types of our us traditionalists. Yeah, in the larger pantheon of Sparks fandom, it, it, it probably has a perfectly acceptable place, but for yeah. someone from a more <laughs> rockist tendency, it's maybe less so. Yeah, so for the come out of my house, um, purist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got to say, number one song in heaven is like, I think that record slams. That's a, oh, really? an amazing record. That, that's your job? I like no, that one. Great. Yeah, I think I think it's really good. I mean, it's it's obviously very different, but I quite enjoy uh, almost all of the Sparks eras. So, Giorgio Moroder. Yes, those guys would um, often do Giorgio Moroder impersonations. 
<laughs> so what, 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 what is his, I don't even know anything. I don't know that much about that guy. What was his, what was the impersonation? <laughs> well, like? well George, Giorgio, I can't, I can't do the prayer. He's, well, I think Giorgio is uh, Italian. I think he grew up, I think he's from uh, like Northern Italy, like almost Switzerland. So he's a, he's a, he's like a mountain, a mountain man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they would impersonate, I guess, one time he told them, he said uh, something like, boys, what we need is a hit. Because <laughs> 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 he was kind of overstating the obvious. Which they, were kind of, they were like, yeah, that's where you come in. Yeah, it's like that, that, that's kind of why we're doing this, buddy. That's a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess maybe he felt like they didn't provide him with a hit song. I don't know. I think um, – I don't know if he was talking. It might have been post number one song in heaven. They might have worked with him another time or something. But uh, yeah. Anyways, but I um, yeah, they had some Giorgio stories. I can't remember too many, but I I think Giorgio lives in L.A. now or something. So I think maybe on occasion they might have seen him, or he may have a house here or something. I don't know. But just the idea that like I mean, what other rockers would hear? What other rockers responsible for things like, you know, come out of my house would be excited by, you know, some obscure dance hit like, you know, I feel loved by Donna Summers right. was at right. the time, you know, and be like, we want to explore that realm. That's interesting, you know? Yeah, let's try this. <laughs> so I uh, you, you played with those guys. You played with Sparks. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. We just kind of jumped into it. Yeah, I, I played bass for them for five years, which is awesome. And uh, unfortunately, I missed it because I was just kind of getting into Sparks at the time. I was I was playing in Europe with them mostly. Okay, cool. So how did how did that come to pass? Of course, we're talking about Sparks, the Ron and Russell. Um, so yeah, Steve McDonald of Red Cross and Melvins. Um, played in sparks in the early 2000s for five years so it was from like 2004 to 2009 i think um roddy bottom from faith no more was the was the common denominator between the sparks brothers and myself um roddy bottom and also dean menta dean menta who played guitar for faith no more after jim was it jim martin that's his name yeah i, I just I had billy gould on on the show uh, not that long ago. And um, of course I grilled yep. him on sparks as well, because apparently that's what I do on this show. <laughs> but- oh, okay. Right. Okay. Well, so, then we're, so just a typical uh, Conan interview. Yeah. 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 But- just like we talk about sparks for forever. And like, fuck, what are they going to talk about some red cross stuff? Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not worried about it. Um, right. Okay. Well, so then there's a faith, no more connection with sparks. Those guys have been fans for a long time. And um, I know they covered this town, it's not big enough for the both of us. And they, um, and they also, um, and then I think they had performed it live with the male brothers at Reading one year, sort of during their height of their popularity. Um, not that they're still not very popular now they are, but, um, so yeah, so there's that connection. And then, um, Dean was Dean who would, was in, um, faith no more, on that on that King for a Day album, he toured with them on that record. Um, he after Faith No More, he started playing with Sparks, 
and so I can't remember. Somehow I I got suggested as the um, when they needed a bass player, but at the time they were just playing as a sort of like an electronic three piece band. But then Morrissey requested that they come to London and uh, play at this festival that he was curating. Remember back in the early two thousands, yeah, when yeah. People went to booking festivals. They started curating yep. them. So right, so Morrissey was one of those people. He was a curator, and he curated um, the Meltdown. I think I think it was two thousand four, and um, we played at Royal Festival Hall. Or was that it? Or the something like that? One of those halls, one of those big government kind of subsidized British halls, and and uh, we did all of Kimono My House, and it was based on uh, hell yeah. Morrissey's um, request, and then uh, and so that was kind of the first time they had traced back because those guys had always been so committed to forging new ground, and they were always really afraid. <laughs> They're very sensitive about being about being nostalgic about the past, and um, so, anyways, it was a real treat and a real honor that they did that album, and then I got to play with them and play the bass on all those terrific songs, and then. That started that relationship, and then I went on to play on the next record, Hello, Young Lovers. Uh, the next couple, I played a little bit on them, and um, so Hello, Young Lovers and Exotic Creatures of the Deep, and did a bunch of European tours. We did a couple of shows in America, but not many. It was hard to convince them at the time to come and do shows in America, but uh, well, that's that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's if you're have a dedicated audience that's like hanging on your every move somewhere else and you know you get treated like a jerk in america i can't imagine you you go where the love is i mean the thing is overseas they were you know comfortably fill theaters in every town and in and in in america they probably would have to settle for packing clubs in most towns but then have played theaters in some of the bigger towns and uh but the thing was, they were always really invested in putting together like like a video presentation, and they always wanted to do some kind of special show, which I totally respect them for and understand. But um, which they didn't feel they could do, like the the logistics would be too expensive. It would be impractical to try to do it in the states, like in a club setting. But um, you know, I always thought that they were um you know kind of um you know underestimating with the love they would find here in the states and then i, I think that um and then in the past couple of years they've they've finally branched out and they've been doing more shows in the states and i'm happy about that this is just after my era right you just didn't personally get to get to enjoy that so okay i just now I get to go to the show and not have to be working. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So, so why that song specifically for the Red Cross record? Oh, um, yeah, because, um, well, it's a song I play with them a lot. Um, I played it every night. And, um, and I remember when I first started playing with them, I was, you know, freaked out by it. We were, we would play, we would sort of play to some of their backing tracks on some songs you know, like the early stuff, the more just sort of rock band stuff, like come out of my house era, that there would be no backing tracks. But when we get into doing stuff that had been produced 
in the 80s or 90s, um, or particularly the late the 90s and later, there would always be some backing tracks, and then and often the tracks would be like you know, like that particular song. I think that they literally did work with the Pet Shop Boys or someone that had worked with the Pet Shop Boys. And, you know, and I'm just such a, like a crotchety old uh, (laughs) purist that like, it it, it was embarrassing for me at first to hear those, those, those 90s um, dance music sounds in my, you know, in my earbuds and uh, and it was almost like oh my god I can't I, I I hope no one can see me kind of thing and uh, it, which is you know ridiculous but you know many of us are so defined by our musical taste that it merits that kind of reaction sometimes and uh, sure so I think for me um, it was a real journey to not only kind of like open my eyes to like get beyond the framework of something like the genre in which it's recorded and then just hear the song underneath it. And once I could get to that place, I was like, Oh, this song is just as good as any song, any song off of come on to my house. It's just that production is very distracting to my ears, but um, <clears throat> you know, but underneath it's like this, this is this, you know, this basically this, 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 um, this anthem to, uh, frustration, you know, this when, you know, when, 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 when's, when's mine? When do I get mine? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> right. My so way being the sort of definitive, uh, you know, that the Sinatra, you know, looking back retrospectively on the, on a, on a career of great exceptional highs and things along those lines. And, and I always kind of felt that that was sort of like an, in the sparks way of just being like a little bit like deeply sardonic about it. Uh, yeah, but then also, you know, observationally clever at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, they're, they're just so smart, and so I think they put that sentiment to tune to song in a way that wasn't corny. It was really, um, and I just really felt it. I was feeling very much. When do I get to sing my way? Um, around the time that I did that, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, I, and then I just thought it was also a fun little pun to then play the song also my way. Um, oh, sure. Because <laughs> you played it in the style that, you know, Red Cross approached it, which is more of almost yeah, like, like sweet more, ramped, or something. Yeah, yeah I ramped it up more. So to me, in my mind, it was a little bit more of kind of like a live at Leeds version or something, you know, but like... Rocked uh, out, basically. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit more rocked out, you know, with the guitars and you could do windmills to it, ideally. <laughs> right, which, which would have been difficult to do with the original. <laughs> yes. So that's that. That's how that happened. And then the, the only other thing I would add is that they, the brothers asked if they could hear it. So I sent it to them and they were so, um, so, um, they were so into it and it just was a really big achievement for me. That's but, fantastic. So, I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's quite the, quite the nod of approval considering yeah. their pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. They said really great things and made me feel really good. Well, that's awesome. And yeah. and so the and the whole record having nothing to do with Sparks, the whole record is pretty hard. Like it's a very very good foot forward. And I was kind of just going through the discography today. There really haven't been for as long as you guys have been a band, Red Cross. I'm talking about. It's there not as many records as I necessarily would have thought. Sure. Uh, like yeah. you had a pretty big like there was like a seven seven year gap between this and the last one, and then the one before that. Everyone was like, just, 
It's eight. We the, the new albums are eighth album. Yeah. And so eight albums, forty years. So if you if you if you divide forty by eight, you end up an album every five years. But it wasn't really done like that because we took a nine year hiatus. Right. But you know, especially after I've been playing with the Melvins for four years, it's yeah. like you know I definitely have a um um uh, a, a complex about <laughs> about our lack of um output. So, but but the same. But regardless, even before that, I knew already that we're definitely not the most prolific band. I mean, in, in the eighties, we we carried we kept a pretty um, respectable run going, like a record every three years or something. But that was pretty standard in the eighties because that was the era where not that we ever had this experience. But when you think about mainstream record, a band would put out a record. And then they'd be releasing singles off of it for two years solid before they even start considering making another record. And uh, so that was just kind of what the audiences were used to around then was a record every three years. And then, you know, but um, so I didn't feel like I didn't have such a complex then about not being productive. enough. But um, yeah, no, we weren't very productive. We were kind of stoner kids, kind of um, we were kind of um, snotty and misbehaved and um you know and we're the kind of people that um are actually quite comfortable in a quarantine because mm. um this feels like my youth to be honest how, how do you figure just having like limited options Lying around, not getting a lot done <laughs> <laughs> it's like the 80s for me pretty much fair enough okay so but i mean it seems like for for Red Cross, I mean, you guys started, you were kids when you started, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this is like, you were like, what, yeah. like uh, 11 and 14, something along those lines? Yeah, Jeff's, um, Jeff's almost four years older than me. But yeah, we were, I was 12 by the time my first record came out. <laughs> but we started, we started when I was 11. And, so um, so yeah, even though I talk about a forty-year career or a forty-plus-year career, I'm in my early fifties. Yeah, um, I was gonna usually, say, most people that would talk about that would be like having like the cane and the uh, yeah and the long beard. So I've always kind of yeah. So it's kind of weird. Like I've always kind of um, I've always my my taste and my stories often sound like I'm much older than I am. Right. Or at least like 10 years older than I am or whatever, 10 to 15 years older. So, and, and you, that was back, you know, around the same time, like black flag and, uh, yep. you know, th things along those era and red cross was, yeah, but we did our first show with black flag, which is insane. But, yeah. uh, it, I mean, did that, that ever strike you as, I mean, I guess at the time you don't have the, uh, the burden of history necessarily with you. Uh, but yeah. did well, that strike you as odd? <laughs> Well, Black Flag were just another group of, you know, dirtbag deadbeats. You know, they weren't they weren't Black Flag yet. They were technically called Black Flag, but um, no one knew who they were. Was it, so? This was uh, was that the Keith era? What's that? Yeah. So it's a it's a Nervous Breakdown EP era. So okay. it's it's a for, it's a, the original four guys. It's Robo, Keith, Chuck, and and. Greg and in fact, when I first met Chuck, he was still going by the name of Gary. I knew him as Gary, 
I think that Chuck was um, Chuck was kind of invented right around the time that Red Cross was starting to pull away from that little world. Right, because because there was a bit of a break. So it's is it interesting that uh, years later you you with Keith Morris you would end up oh, yeah playing with him <laughs> you know all those years later yeah 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 I mean it made sense it made a lot of sense when when he decided to do a band that was going to reference the very early stages of Black Flag it would make a lot of sense to you know um, to recruit me because I was there. You yeah, know, you're coming I, from I, the same time period, the same culture, the same yeah, the same place. In, in a I way, mean, I didn't necessarily, I, ne- I didn't necessarily have the same approach towards playing, or but I was there, so I definitely saw it firsthand a lot. I experienced it a lot, and I I had a sense of what it was about. So I thought that I could do a good job doing it. You know. Yeah, you have that cultural shorthand that you don't necessarily have to have it graphed yeah. out for you necessarily sure <laughs> with, with red cross I, and i heard a red cross you know far later in life and sort of divorced of, of hearing it from any of the you know contemporaries or whatnot but i always kind of felt like it was coming from more of a rock place uh, which is fine by me as a yeah. as a rock guy um right but there definitely kind of seems like i mean i think it says it all that you know on like you got that Deuce cover, that cover of that Kiss song on there, which is fantastic. It's like one of the best Kiss covers. Yeah. Cheers. And it kind, it kind of seems like yeah. you guys took a lot from what you liked that was like the non-BS parts of like big rock and roll, too. Yeah, I mean, that's the stuff we grew up on. That's the stuff that we were really into before we got into punk rock. I, I saw Kiss at the form um, when I was stupid young. Uh, I, th- I think... Um, I was eight years old, and um, it was my first concert ever. Was um, Kiss when they were still touring on the first Alive? Um, oh, so it it was when teenagers were still into Kiss before you know before they went disco and <laughs> right. um, yeah 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 and music from the Elder and all that. <laughs> yeah, well, by then no one liked them. But yeah, yeah. prior to that. <laughs> That's just kind of my my spinal tap go to of bad ideas. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cause, well, the interesting thing I think about us doing that Kiss cover on that record. So we do, we do Deuce on our Teen Babes for Monsanto record, which is an all covers record, um, and we were sort of referencing Bowie Bowie's pinups because that was a the first record we ever knew that was an artist paying tribute to their influences. And, um, in fact, that's where I heard a lot of that classic music for the first time, you know, first time I'd heard like Sid Barrett's version of Pink Floyd, see Emily play was David Bowie's version on the pinups album from 1973. Yep. And, and so I think that 10 years later, Jeff and I were just kind of interested in giving our own little underground rock community, a similar experience. And, um, so, you know, when we did um, Deuce, that was like 84. You know, it's only a couple of years after The Elder. I don't think Kiss has taken their makeup off yet. And they're really at the sort of rock bottom of their popularity. Yeah. No, one's waving, no one's waving their banner. I mean, definitely no one that I knew. You know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyone that was wouldn't be someone you have much in common with. 
Yeah, well, I knew a few weirdos that were still obsessed with the first Kiss Alive album yeah. in 1984. But, you know, for the most part, you know, you know, the, the Creatures of the Night album, which was, you know, maybe that was the next record after The Elder. I liked it. It was sort of a return to form. And I guess that's the record where they actually became popular in England for the first time, which is so weird to me. But, um, uh, but at the really, same that time, one? Wow. Okay, that's uh, yeah. That's what I understand. That's a this um, from reading on, and then also online stuff, and then also our friend Bob Hannum. I think you know. Um, yeah. From from the from, from the, the Melvins documentary, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, Fraley's vomit. Bob, <laughs> exactly, and Bob, Bob over in England, he got into Kiss for the first time on Creatures of the Night, and um, wow. I think that's true. I think that's when they kind of um, took off there. But at any rate, um, so I guess my point is, the only point I'm trying to make is that we were waving their banner when no one, no one else was because we're that cool. <laughs> <laughs> and again, realizing that I don't have the context, maybe I might be misinterpreting things, but it seems like it just came from an honest and earnest joy of – yeah, that that kind of stuff and that kind of like big uh, rock pageantry, but kind of with like punk rock enthusiasm. And I, yeah, particularly that song. I mean, I, you know, Deuce is the first song on Alive. It's the first. So when they when I saw them when they were touring Alive, they were basically just doing the same set list. You know, so that's the first song they played at the first concert I went to. You know, it's permanently ingrained in my brain. It's you know, it's. Uh, important moment. It's a great moment. So, you know, when, and so regardless if that was a popular idea at that moment, you know, with our peer group, we didn't care. But. <laughs> you, you didn't do a focus group <laughs> on it. <laughs> no. Well, it's yeah, hard, really hard to organize a focus group in the pre-internet era. Yeah. So no, yeah. We did people, people don't, uh, people don't remember, which is unfortunately yeah. becoming like a common theme to talk about in this show, which kind of to me always sounds like kids these days. They, you know, they don't know. They, yeah. they don't, they have no idea. We used to have to crawl to school on our knees and gravel. <laughs> Both ways. <laughs> Both ways. Hailstorms. No, but um, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I can be a crotchety old man too, but you know, whatever. It just, but it, uh, you don't come yeah, off that way. Was, that's, that's, I mean, you, you okay. definitely, even to this day, like seeing you, seeing you play or you know, talking to you, you definitely seem to have like a, an unending wellspring of enthusiasm for all things rock well, that yeah. is lacking. Well, that's, and a I'm lot of people. A natural, I'm a naturally good actor. <laughs> I'm from LA. Right. It's in the water. <laughs> it's in the water. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So no, I don't know. So fast forward a little bit to Neurotica. Tommy sure. Tommy Ramone, uh, yeah. he he produced that, right? Am I am I wrong on that? He did. He came out to LA, which which is awesome, and uh, recorded and mixed our record in a couple of different studios in LA, and it was pretty cool. Of of the Ramones, you know those not they're not super knowledgeable about the Ramones. That, that was a thing that like, he'd kind of already been doing that before he ever uh, joined up with them and, and did those first records. So he was certainly knowledgeable in, in the field. Did you feel it was a good, it was a good match for you guys and what you were trying to do with that? Sure. I mean, it was, I think that if there was any weirdness, it was probably mostly just that we weren't used to working with a 
you know, producer. Right. So we probably were a bit skeptical of, you know, uh, someone tampering with us. And that's probably one of the reasons why we wanted to work with him because we felt like, oh, he's he's a musician. He's going to understand that he's going to understand where we're coming from. He's going to understand that we don't want to be fucked with. Right. And pardon my French. I don't know if I'm allowed to no, say you're that. You're fine. It's it's the internet. You can you can curse. I should have okay, mentioned that. Cool. Sorry. Gotcha. And um, so that you know, but then um, and then also he had um, another point of reference. I mean, obviously, we're huge Ramones fans. They were instrumental in um, us playing in a band at all. And we learned we learned how to play bass and guitar, my brother and I, from listening to the first album. The first Ramones album is recorded in a way where the, uh, it's mi- I mean, mixed in a way where all the guitar is on one side and all the bass is on the other side. So if you use... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like true. super hard band. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I used to listen are- to the headphones every day. I know it well, yeah. Right, then you know. And yeah. so back then, you know, we all had stereo systems with a balance knob on it. And you, if you turn the balance knob to the left or to the right, I forget which it is, and um, you would remove either the guitar or the bass from the mix. And then you could just fill in that person's role. And it was, and it was a perfect jumping in point to being in a punk rock band. Um, but so back to Tommy... Around that, uh, I think it was 85, the Ramones had put out their um, uh, Too Tough to Die album, which Tom, yeah, that's right, which we had co produced. And I remember that record really seemed like it was like a there was like new life in the band at that moment. It was a really good, solid album, and uh, so it really put the Ramones back on our radar. And and it was right around that time we were being asked to consider a producer so um that was one of the few records that we really loved that had a producer and so we that's that's how all that came up now we're talking that's like what 88 87 somewhere around that neighborhood like yeah i think the record was recorded yeah i think it's like 86 87 okay i think we did most of our touring in 87 but i think it might have come out towards the end of 86 that record came out and it's, it seems to me, and again, I I was, I was not there, so I can't say, but it seems to me like that was relatively well received and influential amongst what kind of later became known as uh, the grunge scene, if you will, which is, I'm, I'm I'm giving myself self-flagellations for, uh, for saying that those terms, but what grunge. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. You have a problem with grunge. Grunge out, man. Why? Hey, just joined a band that, well, I wish that the name of the band was the war on grunge, but I don't know if it's the name or not, but, um, <laughs> but that whole thing with Mark and with the mud honey guys and Melvin guys. And so, but uh, whatever, but not that I don't hate grunge. I just thought it was funny. The war on grunge, but um, yeah, but war, war on grunge is a pretty hilarious, especially since it's been this long too, you know, that you have like whole kids of like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Melvin's and Mud Honey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and what I was speaking of, yeah, of course, our, our bands like that, you know, at the time, um, you know, even even pre Mud Honey, you had uh, you know, Green River and, and whatnot. Like, but it, it definitely, it seemed like it was musically kind of coming from the same place of just finding finding the stuff that was good about rock and roll 
and and like big rock and kind of like coming at it from a punk rock place uh and in the same sort of way that in some ways that you guys were doing in different ways than, than others sure. well i think the other connection was that it was like um so we were interested in playing with guitar and playing loud guitars um uh you, you know interacting with the landscape that we had inherited but we were also still referencing music from the past that um some of it was never mainstream music, like the Stooges, for instance. And so, you know, when you're doing, when you're referencing something like the Stooges, you're definitely, especially in like a 1986, 87. Well, we we play, we do a Stooges song on Team Babes from Monsanto, Santo in 1984. And you know, I mean, I guess it's really the reasons. Like I, earlier, I was talking about Sparks. Oh my God! I gotta turn my um, <laughs> blowing up. Is that Mark Arm? Does he not doesn't Does he not want it to be called War on Grunge? Yeah, yeah. He's like, what the hell? Are blowing you, you up. misrepresenting all of us? <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I guess it's, you know. But just going back to me earlier talking about doing um, when do I get to sing my way and how you know when I'm God, I was in my like mid thirties listening to the backing tracks of the sparks version, I would cringe because I was felt like, Oh, this is not me. You know, like right. you're so invested in your taste in music. It's, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what all that's about, but, but, but one of the things that happens when you are, and it's different than the mainstream is that you, you, you used to find you, you would find other people that you identify with. Okay. Well, and, Ultimately, good songs are good songs, too. Doing house party video chat. Would Dale know what I'm doing right now? I have no idea. Anyways. Is that that Dale? I'll message him right now. Get the fuck out of the phone with Steve and I'm talking to him. (laughs) It was. But the other ones weren't that. that, But then all of a sudden, Dale got on the house party. So I don't know. But anyways, we're all good. But but let me just finish the thought really fast, which was that, okay, pre-internet. Okay, that, that statement makes me old. But especially in the pre-internet days, it maybe it was especially important to be to have these signifiers like yeah. your taste in music, because then you could find others that you felt you related to your the gaba gaba hey we accept you one of us right. mentality, and um, and so and so that's maybe one of the reasons why the people in the Pacific Northwest immediately responded to what we were pushing in the mid late eighties. And, you know, we just, it felt natural and comfortable when we, when we went up there for the first time in 86 and green river and Soundgarden opened for us, you know, it was, it seemed like we already kind of understood each other a bit and it might've been because it was, we'd already made our declaration of what our influences are and where we're coming from musically. And so, I mean, I, I, the phrase I've always used is cultural shorthand, you know, just to have that, yeah, uh, yeah. To, to know where okay. someone's coming from. Okay, hang on, really quick. Okay. <laughs> Dale, I, I'm on um, the Conan pro, uh, pro, Protonic Reversal radio show right now. <laughs> yeah, actually, now you are too. Hi, Dale. Uh, well, you're doing it yourself, man. Yeah, you're on the air, buddy. <laughs> yeah, just because I put you Sweet. on speakerphone. How's it going, Conan? Good, man. I think I'm, we're, we're doing something next week, aren't we? <laughs> I don't 
don't know. You didn't. You didn't respond to me. Oh shit! Oh my bad. <laughs> my my bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was really busy quarantining himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Let me know what you got window wise, and I'll tell you if I can get my schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See if you seem clear, clear a little space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Well, I was, I was just calling to shoot the shit. And uh, see if you wanted to get on house party. <laughs> okay, well I can just do... you know it's 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 uh, happy hour. Oh, it's happy hour! I gotcha. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> this is some shit. It's a house party happy hour. That's right. Uh, okay, well maybe after I'm done with Conan. Sure. All right. You guys have fun. Okay, you have a happy hour. All right. Okay, bye, Dale. <laughs> that was fun. I thought maybe he was listening to your show, yeah, and how to and to straighten me out. What's What's funny is he's right. I totally never wrote him back. <laughs> wow, dude. Yeah, I know. I've I've been I've been cranking out these episodes, so I've been, you know, stuff happens. These things, these things happen. Yeah. Th- that was funny. Yeah, funny. <laughs> what's house party? What's this? What am I not what? invited to something cool? Uh, yeah, you don't know about house party. Uh oh. <laughs> what is what is that? <laughs> uh, it's just it's like Zoom. Do you know that one? Have you turned oh, yeah, on to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. It's like Zoom, but it's um, it's but there's like there's little games that you can play, like little trivia games with people. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just a way. Like we, my kid keeps up with his cousins every day with house party and. They play, you know, sports trivia. Oh, okay. Interesting. Huh. But don't say it because all of our listeners are going to run and leave our <laughs> conversation. Just watch listenership just drop down we immediately as everyone. House party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So after, after Dale Crover so rudely interrupted, what were, what were we discussing? Yeah. We were, oh, so we were talking, yeah. So we we're talking uh, about the well, grunge guys. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about the Pacific Northwest, yep. so I thought that's maybe what Dale was calling to, you know, correct me. I might have, I might have had some of that wrong. It's definitely something where, because was that your first major label record? Is, is is that correct? Kind of. It was on a it was on a label called Big Time Records, which sounds like a major label, right? Like, how much bigger can you be than Big Time? <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they were, um, it was a, as an independent label that had distribution through a major. Okay, gotcha. So, and and of course, at the time, I mean, late 80s, you know, hair metal was kind of still. Yeah, I think it's still sort of. I almost jumped in when you said still sort of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not to my taste, is, is probably the, the diplomatic way to put that, it. But. That would be the diplomatic, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm not judging. No, um, yeah, well, <laughs> but wait, wait, so what was the question? It was, it, it was still what? So, so the, so the, uh, musical landscape, there's, there's a bunch of hair metal bands. You guys are doing oh, yeah. this more like pure rock and roll kind of thing. Uh, yeah. you know, coming from more garage rock, almost like Stooges-y, cheap, cheap, old school, cheap trick kind of place. Uh, yeah. Also Beatles are always there. So sure. it's melodic if we can manage to keep the melody intact, it's melodic and, you know, yeah. And so then how would, how does, 
how do things change? Because you got uh, Third Eye is the is the one after that. That's the one. Um, that's the one that has that. Uh, it's it's. <laughs> there's, it sounds like Paul Stanley on the one song. Um, I can't remember. This is the era. Yeah. This is the time. Yeah, yeah that's that. That's, that's something that. Robert Hecker, uh, um, Robert Hecker does it a pretty impressive Paul Stanley impersonation. So yeah, I and mean, then we, in those pre-internet days, I thought it was Paul Stanley. So I'm like, oh, what's that guy? Yeah, do? Well, we you know? told him. So, but well, also because on the record, we 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 were pretty good at creating our own mythology, and we we randomly thanked Paul Stanley on the record. I don't think we necessarily gave him a a, a fake credit. But we just kind of put it in there that made it look like he was, you know, I don't because I don't think we credited Robert for singing that those few lines in a Paul Stanley tone. Mm-hmm. And we right. wanted, wanted to leave it ambiguous so that people would come to that conclusion, which they did. <laughs> well, again, and in, in, in it's hard to it's hard to describe to you younger folks necessarily, but there was a time where you could more easily pull off something like that and it you know it wouldn't be immediately spoiled and discovered and shared on social media family would weigh in on instagram (laughs) yeah he would he would have thoughts about it uh yeah paul stanley would have weighed in and said i don't know what they're talking about it's definitely not me (laughs) so there were uh, kind of like a slight change up with the tunes still coming from, you know, very, very rock place. But, uh, was, was that something where that's the, so that's the one that, that was, a uh, Atlantic, I think. Yeah. Okay. You had a bunch of stuff percolating, uh, in music, you know, there were the, the bands that are coming, were coming from more authentic place. were kind of starting to, to, to grind up. Uh, was it something well, where well, it's it was, pretty, a, it's pretty never mind. Yeah. But it, but it was pre Nevermind, correct? So it was before, quote unquote, punk so broke. We, we kind of had shitty timing because we kind of got this break in the major label world in 1990, which was this weird, um, um, you know, kind of transitional era. Or, or, or it was just the status quo of just shitty music in the mainstream. And then we missed that one little window where there was like, good music in the mainstream for a year or two or you know i mean that sounds remarkably bitter but i mean like for my taste you know it's rare when there's stuff that you actually like that breaks into the mainstream and cracks the door open a little bit mm-hmm. and you know and people would be like well who gives a fuck about the mainstream but the reality is we signed to atlantic records and we the music that we loved was always like i mean pre-punk rock the music that we grew up with that we loved was very popular music um you know and so i think we didn't have any problem with the idea of aiming for that we just didn't it was just a weird concept to do it in 1990 when we didn't really identify with anything that was having major success i mean i guess the closest thing would have been like guns and roses or or uh, or um Jane's Addiction, but like right. you know, we didn't really like either of those bands, or or we were competitive with them, or someone was rude to our friend from one of those. You know what I mean? It's all that kind of <laughs> right. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's something where it's 
you know, you're you're forging your own road, and yeah. that certainly isn't always rewarded. Is probably the most charitable way to put that. No, and, well, I mean, well, we were on and off Atlantic within a year, right? And it again, <laughs> very difficult to describe to younger folks, but there used to be this idea of bands, quote unquote, selling out, which was yeah. <laughs> the dumbest thing in the world. But <laughs> but yeah. this idea that, oh, if you went to a major label, then, oh, you sold out to the man, man. And it's like, OK, well, who uh, well, around that time was right when like um, SST was um, SST had started this campaign corporate rock still sucks and they were um there's that sticker it was in every um college radio station you know several several um you know several uh examples of it pasted all over the radio stations and there you know and i must remember we we you know we got some backlash from that kind of world you know, I mean, it, may, it could have been the content of the music, or it could have just li- literally been the label that the record was pressed on, and um, pressed by, or whatever. You know, who knows? But, um, but you know, the sort of ironic thing about that is just that, you know, Black Flag and SST were promoting this idea that corporate rock still sucks, and then what we all found out a few years later was that they weren't even paying their band. Right, they were they acting were worse than the major labels and with their fact, ethics, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, Greg, yeah, Greg, Greg Ginn, as it turns out, had like, you know, that had been helping himself to people's publishing, to to their band's publishing. Like yeah. many, like a couple years later when bands like Sonic Youth or Me Puppets ended up on major labels, and then they kind of found out at that time, like, wait, you, you haven't been paying us or you, you've been collecting on our publishing for years. And why, we don't understand why or how. And, you know, and they were just kind of taking advantage of a bunch of, you know, because the reality is it's like, you know, um, most musicians are not this, you know, the sharpest knives in the drawer, at least, <laughs> at least like in terms of business, at least not in terms of like, you know, understanding like how to, how, you know, how, how does revenue generate in this business? And I don't think that, you know, I still, the, the, the publishing question, I, Every time it comes up, I'm always like, okay, let's go over this again. Okay, explain it to me again. Okay, there's two sides to the publishing. There's the master side, and then there's the sync side. And what does that mean? And who and who owns what? Oh, there's the writer's portion, and you can never lose the writer. And it's always so confusing. What is BMI? How does ASCAP fit into all this? Right, and right. I, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's really confusing. But Greg Ginn understood it yeah. early on. I mean – I don't know if he was like a business school major, but I know that he was a UCLA grad. And, um, and you know, and I just think that they were taking advantage of, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not taking um, the responsibility away from the artist. I mean, obviously it's your responsibility to understand your, your own shit, you know, sure, sure. if this is a business you're in, then you should understand how you make money from that business. But, you know, that's not always the way it gets done, and I just think that those guys knew that, and they were taking advantage of it. That that yeah. most musicians had no idea of how the money was generated, and so it just was a bit of like it's it's kind of hilarious that 
that corporate rock still sucks thing had been a thing around that time. And then it was something that would come up once in a while to us. And then, you know, when you find out a few years later, the same people who was printing up those stickers were also stealing publishing rights from their own bands. Yeah. Just this deep kind of just evil sort of hypocrisy that. uh... Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's also like, you know, it's also like, you know, crowd baiting, like knowing that people will go down that path like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That corporation sucks and they're not as good because um, we're more ethical as a small company. You know, it's just like, what? You know? It's, yeah. Small companies can still be crooked as it turns out. <laughs> well, especially in the music industry. Yes. And in fact, as I've learned you know, historically speaking, it was the small indies that were always the least scrupulous. Like, um, you know, like in the sixties, you had a bunch of indie labels in Los, well, in Los Angeles. I don't know about another in New York as much, but probably, but like, um, you know, now it's funny because like I, my wife is sort of part of sort of indie, indie, indie music business. Um, legacy royalty in a weird sort of way because right. her grandfather started um liberty records in the 60s our, our um well liberty was part of yeah liberty and imperial right so liberty records and they um they were an independent label they had um offices on sunset boulevard um, i think it was like in an old house turned into business and um and those, and there were some of those still kind of around in the early '80s when I first started playing as well. But, um, but uh, you know, he he. Um, it's also worth mentioning and, that she played in the Incredible That Dog too, which I think is always worth oh, mentioning. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a yeah great we, band. we could, we could <laughs> do a whole show about Anna, right? And her, <laughs> her, her amazingness, but uh, but no, but just to, on the topic of the the, the record the, industry stuff, the like, record industry, yeah. the scruples of the indie. Yep. Okay, so like, so Cy Warrenker was Anna's grandfather. He started Liberty Records. They had their major, first major success with the Chipmunks. In fact, there's even a Chipmunk named after him, Simon. Oh, no, and, kid- <laughs> no kidding, really? I didn't know that. How yeah, funny. Named after Simon Warrenker. And, um, and, you know, but I mean, and I, I, I knew Cy a few years before he passed on. Um, but he would tell these hilarious stories about how, um, like, for instance, like he did um, all those Cool Liberty Records um, album covers, you know, that the that, that really, like, beautifully um, uh, art-directed, like, pin-up picture of a girl. And uh, so that Julie London album, Cry Me a River, for instance, which I guess I don't know much about that record, but it was a really big success for for Psy back in the early '60s, and it was considered a groundbreaking record because it was super scaled down at a time when pop records had these big orchestral arrangements. But Psy, he didn't care about the music. All he cared about was the record cover, and he didn't think that. I think that Julie London could sing her way out of a wet paper bag. He thought that she was only good 
for a decent record cover. So he spent oh, all he spent the entire budget on the Crimea River record on the record cover. And <laughs> so when it came time to record the record, they didn't have any money. They had to do a really scaled down arrangement. So it was just stand up bass, piano and drums. So it was a small little trio and um, and Julie London. And then I remember Cy, you know, um, much later in the early 2000s or early 90s, late, late 90s, when I first got to know him, he would sit at the end of the dinner table laughing and cackling about how a journalist would go on about how that was a groundbreaking record because of its scaled down production. And how <laughs> it changed the course of, you know, you know, of, of, of a whole genre of music. Right. And, and he was laughing all the way to the bank because all he cared about was the record cover. <sighs> and then the other, and then the funny thing is, and then so size son is the great um, record producer and record executive, um, Lenny Warren Kerr. Right. And Lenny, and Lenny's known for having um, produced, you know, records like feeling groovy by the Harper's bazaar. And then, and then all of the Randy Newman records and, um, and then later becoming an executive for Warner brother records and it's Warner brothers. It's not Warren Kerr brothers. So he doesn't <laughs> own Warner brothers. Right. People often would that confusion. But, um, but the point is that he was disgusted by his father, his father's tactics. He thought that, the way his father treated the artist was inhumane and humiliating and embarrassing. And so he was completely dedicated as an executive at Warner Brother Records to um, putting the artist first. And he really believed in that. And so it's just ironic that, you know, there is these stupid trends and these mis these these um, misunderstandings are are you know people misunderstanding people not uh, the people believing believing these falsities or whatever you call them um, about things and it just becomes a popular thing to say you know that uh, yeah you know Myths selling out. <laughs> but also the other thing is that it's also I kind of love that beauty of like I do like that Sai only cared about making a buck and then in the process. He accidentally made, he accidentally led these musicians into making groundbreaking music just because he wanted to spend all his money on the record cover. But, you know, I mean, I think a lot of times great art does come from some other place. You know, I think, you know, so I can't, I mean, I'm kind of defending all sides right now. I, I kind of see the, 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 you know, the validity of looking at it from all different perspectives, you know. Well, sure, and it's it's also and does that make sense? What I'm saying? No, I mean, no, I'm absolutely, just, absolutely, and 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 I think it's a it's fascinating tale too because, you know, I've had Keith on the show, before, and he's he's very he's very diplomatic, but uh, you know, he's Keith and he's he's he gets across his point, and it, I feel like, especially there's so many tales. I think a lot of people would describe certain things with SST, especially to like, Oh, black flag. Yeah. You know, they practically invented like indie band touring, like, you know, cool. Awesome. And it's like, yeah. And 
Greg Ginn is an iconic guitar player and those records are great, but if someone treats you like dirt, they treat you like dirt. Doesn't matter if they have millions or thousands. Ultimately it's 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 a reductive it's a reductive thing and well, I mean there's nuance, right? So therein you see the problem, because people don't like nuance. They like harsh invective and uh, slogans. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess we're all busy, right? We need we need things delivered to us and digestible packets. So, and and again, and that was fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing it. But I also want to talk a little bit. Like we we only kind of got to the we only got to like what nineteen ninety there. So sure. talk to me. Just sum up the nineties. I guess is the question. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot that happened there. But what, what was the question? So sum up for, for Red Cross uh, for the 90s. Yeah. Uh, you had yeah. Phase Shifter Show World. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is going on in a very changing environment. There's suddenly these manufactured bands that are, you know, what would have been hair farmers, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and to be clear, I mean that as an insult. Sometime earlier that suddenly are trying to, you know, sound like you know, whatever the flavor of the minute is for quote unquote alternative. Uh, and, mm-hmm. but you guys are applying your trade, you're doing your thing, you're, you're making records. Um, I mean, that's gotta be kind of strange to be this authentic thing and this, you know, institution. And then to see like this whole sort of artifice come up of just kind of fake crap. Really? I mean, at least that's from my perspective again, uh, I'd be interested in what your perspective on the, the uh, are you 90s. Talking about yeah, are you talking about mid late nineties, sort of post grunge, yeah. like like the sort of, that that sort of moment after Nirvana happens, and then all of the all of the sort of um, all of the kind of cultivated music that's 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 sort of trying to utilize those key themes, but put it in a more um, palatable framework. Yeah. To, ha- to have the trappings of rebellion and, or yeah, that kind of those themes. I mean, you know, the, what was, I mean, the main theme with Nirvana was, I guess, alienation and, 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 uh, you know, apathy. And then, so that, that becomes the sort of, you know, buzz angle, but then you've got, you know, people that aren't, um, rooted in his t- music in the same way that I am to have the same taste necessarily. Right. And then, but they're borrowing those themes from music that I do have the same taste and, you know, and then I don't know. And then the industry gets involved and wants to figure out, you know, everyone's always trying to figure out, you know, what the formula is. Cause if you can figure it out, then you can make a lot of money is the, is the idea. But I don't think it really works like that, but you might always sneak in there right at the end of a trend, you know, and you might, you might get lucky or something, you know, I don't know. Um, but it's not going to be really important. It's not going to last for a long time, but you might make a quick buck. And so there's still definitely a lot of that going on in the late 90s. And, you know, I don't know. They sort of nickelbacks and those kinds of bands, I guess. And then, um, but then also the other things happening for me in the late 90s that I'm realizing I've been doing the music thing for 20 years, but I'm only in my early 30s. And but I'm realizing <laughs> I made life decisions about the entire cult 
And I started to feel like that might have been irresponsible, just in the sense of like, you know, okay, well, you know, because also, you know, it was also becoming clear. Why were we just saying that, like, after I'd been around the time I'd been doing it for 20 years, was at the same time when I was realizing, like, well, you know, we had some shots at um, the mainstream. We had a few, you know, a few major label records, and that didn't, we didn't really meet those expectations. So, um, you know, maybe I should consider what other um, avenues in the world would be profitable for me. No. And it just seemed, it seemed reasonable because it was at the same time, it was like there wasn't a lot of interest in our band. It was like hard to know. You know, it was like uh, the industry certainly was not interested. Um, like as once because once someone throws it against the wall, you know, everybody's like, you know, all the everyone's like, oh, well, OK, so that band had their chance. They had their shot. And because it's all a crapshoot, you know, no one actually knows. And and so they sort of figure like, because uh, in reality, it could just be that, oh, those people were working with the wrong people, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's, it's not the it, band's fault. It's just that it... The, there could be a lot of elements. It could also just have been the right. wrong time, you know? You could take that same group of people and, and try it a few years later and have a different outcome. But um, what, Levon that? wants to talk to you. Oh, I'm doing an interview. I want to talk to Levon now. Okay. I'll come up in a minute. Okay, thank you. Okay. okay. Sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so yeah, so I decided to go on hiatus, and I, I went to school, and um, I studied music. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't give up on the music thing, and I wasn't necessarily – obviously, I didn't go study business, which I probably should have, but um, or some other – trade but I, I started thinking well maybe i can produce records maybe i can be involved uh and more on the business side too or just something behind the scenes so i, I did that I, I continued to play that's during the time i was like but i would play more like uh in someone else's band i was not trying to lead a band i was trying to um, manage a group and all that um so it was just became something else that i did amongst other things and uh did that for quite, I did that for almost 10 years before I got back this mess that I'm in now. And, and uh, but, um, but I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm playing again. It's been, so, like it's been another decade of me out there, and, you know, slugging it out. Yeah. So, and, and I realize, you know, we, we briefly talked about it, but uh, can you go a little more? in depth with uh, the story of like how off came to pass. I mean, I, again, I had Keith on the show. I know there was like circle jerks kind of were doing something and it wasn't really working out. And uh, Dimitri and, and Keith kind of decided, you know, th there was a thing like, Oh, well, let's, let's just screw it. Let's do something else. Uh, yeah. I mean, would you say that's like a fair assessment from your side? I'm just trying to sum up so we can get to it. Sorry. If I don't yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, that's basically what happened. And then, um, yeah, they, they, they had an ill-fated circle they had an ill-fated attempt of making a circle jerks record. And um and then so when that fell apart, um Keith decided to put together off. So he asked Dimitri to do it, then he and then soon after he asked me to do it. And that's gotta be crazy, like playing, you know, that type of music and, and that type of you know, that has that youthful intensity. Uh but be doing it in, you know, for lack of a better term, a modern era. And to 
you know, with with folks that are also veterans that that are have been around <laughs> doing it for forever, but kind of recontextualizing as like a new thing. Also, uh, I mean, that's did that kind of just feel like putting on like a comfortable pair of pants, or was it something where you had to sort of rekey your thinking to get down with it? Well, I had never been in a, like a a quote unquote hardcore band, right? So even though I was around. I mean, literally for the birth of Southern California hardcore, um, I, I would never say the Red Cross was a hardcore band, but I mean, I was familiar with it and, you know, and, and I have, I have, um, you know, a, um, affinity for that. I, I'm, I, I like that I was there for that moment and, um, and, you know, it does feel special. And so it does seem like, um, well, you know, and then in terms of like the tech, the technical aspect of it, it's like, well, you know, definitely handle the technical aspect, I think, um, you know, but, it, but the more important, like the, the harder to do it is the sort of, you know, your taste, how do you approach this? That's the, that's the more kind of um, esoteric, you can't really explain it to someone kind of thing. Right. And, and, um, and and I felt confident that you know that I was interested uh, that I could that I had something to bring to the picture, you know. And also, and I just I, I really liked that particular era, that early stage of Black Flag, um, the Keith era, and I thought that um, you know, and I learned later, you know, it was like oh, hardcore is a term that's been reused a million times, and I would immediately see. 10 years younger than me, 15 years younger, 20 years younger. And they all had been in hardcore bands, but it was another era's hardcore. And they had their own rituals and their own specific things where, you know, everyone sang and everyone would crowd around the lead singer and he couldn't be on a high stage and they right. would be shouting the microphone with them. And that's hardcore 97 yeah. or that hardcore 2002 you know i i don't know different vintages <laughs> of, of hardcore <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay cool i'll take your word for it <laughs> and, uh, and just i have lots of moments like that you know and, and so it, it, in other words it, it didn't it wasn't old hat it wasn't just um you know it wasn't just nostalgia it was i was still learning and discovering stuff or maybe Stuff I had ignored too. I mean, like, there's a there's a line on our Neurotica album that says um, on the song uh, "Peach Kelly Pop," where we're kind of making fun of a lot of hair metal bands in Los Angeles, and uh, and there's a line that my brother says that he says, "No, oh no, the song is called Play My Song," and this and the right. line is, uh, "No punk rock ruts or metal sluts for me." Oh no, and. Uh, and I remember that was just sort of, you know, at certain different times in our career, we'd felt stifled by things and it felt like they were, you know, ruts or ghettos to get stuck in. And we felt like we were trying to progress beyond stuff. And so a lot of times I, I overlooked things maybe too, that when I got older and more confident about who I was as a person, I, I could go back and listen and not feel challenged or not be worried about oh no what if i like this or what if i don't like this you know to kind of come at it without the preconceptions of something that you had before maybe yeah 
Yeah, just being so intertwined with like what I like is who I am, and if you like this, then I definitely don't. And <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, and and that is you know, especially in a in an environment like you know a small punk rock scene where um, you know in Los Angeles where you know there's lots of codes and lots of rules and. You know, you start to get very. We became very irreverent about those codes and those rules, and we immediately wanted to, you know, break them. And so, in 1983, when I guess it's probably for someone that's the that's the golden age of hardcore music. I don't know. For me, I could. I you know, I I didn't. I wasn't listening to it. I was more into going to thrift stores and um, finding. Um, you know, old vinyl of bands that had been popular in Los Angeles in 1966 that were now littering the thrift stores. And you could get all of the Arthur Lee and Love records and, you know, one stop for $4. And, <clears throat> and there was so much to mine from the, from, you know, at the time was the recent past. And, um, that you know that I ignored my my generation. I ignored my generation with underground music and mainstream music. Like I was just recently listening to a a playlist I put together of um, the most popular songs from 1980, because I was trying to remember something about my own life, and I was like, well, maybe if I listen to this music that was on the radio, then it will remind me spark something. Of, yeah. Um, <laughs> Like some sense memory, and uh, I was shocked by how horrible the music was. Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was like, wait, what is this? You know, this, you know, this bad. You know, like uh, the heart, the heart cover of Tell It Like It Is. You know, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not, like, it's not great, and, and not great. It's really not great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like when Hungry Heart by Bruce Spring comes on. Bruce Springsteen comes on and it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like fucking, you know, Black Sabbath compared to everything else. You're <laughs> right. to. Yeah, it sounds tough as shit. You know yeah. you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, that's, that's hilarious. And, and well, so I want to be mindful of your time. I realize that we, we actually haven't talked about the Melvins that much, which is funny because oh, uh, Dale Cullen earlier. Oh. But yeah, I'm in that band. So so Dale d- kind of subs for uh, Mario on on an off tour. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> some time back. Yeah, how did it come to playing with Melvins? You 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 recorded with them for the Bases Loaded thing. Well, I mean, also I also go way back with them. I mean, I can't say that we stayed tight, but I I've known them since the early '90s. Right. And um, you know, Buzz moved to Los Angeles in like '93. And we had um, a friend in common, Bill Bartell, who's now deceased, from the band White Flag. Gasatanka Records was another creation of his, and dwells at Tater Tots. And he's just a real weirdo, Bill Bartell. Um, he also went by the stage name of Pat Fear, not to be confused with Pat Smear. And uh, <laughs> right. so, and I remember Buzz and I used to talk on the phone a lot back then, around '93. And we would just—I don't, I don't even remember what we would go on about. We we're probably talking shit about Nirvana. I, I can't remember, but um, or about all the people around them. 
And because uh, uh, we had the same managers as Nirvana. And then um, and then obviously we all know Buzz's connection. So mm-hmm. he had to deal their world of sycophants with like, you know, they'd be like, wait, this is the kid that, you know, um, you know, whatever the. You know, the 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 dirt bag from 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 Aberdeen that used to follow me around is now has all these sicko fans around him. Right. What the fuck? And um, and having to navigate that. So we had plenty to talk about. And um, and then um, so, yeah, so I go way back with them. And then but then many years later, um, yeah, off was going to do some touring and Mario couldn't. Um, Mario Rubicaba was was busy with one of his other bands, and so uh, and it just so happened that Dale had a had a, had a, a rare window in his itinerary, which is very rare uh, indeed. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and so but it you know really worked out. It was very serendipitous, and um, and uh, he came in January. He's done a bunch of shows with Off throughout the years from that point on, but um, but you know uh, it kind of became like a like a, um, um, you know, a first call, um, stand in for Mario. And then, um, <clears throat> but then, um, but then that's, that same thing got offered to me with the Melvins basically. And it was, it was around that time that, um, I guess the, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, Cody and, uh, Cody and Jared, I'm, I'm forgetting their band. I'm just having a brain freeze. Big business, um, big business. So it was right around the time the big business was, um, um, you know, wanting to do more of their own stuff, and I and and so perfect timing. And around that same time, Off had kind of went on hiatus, and they needed to take a break. And um, so, I you know, I just you know with all, I know Melvin's and you know they've had so many bass players and. And I relate. I've had played with Red Cross. I've had so many different musicians. I, with Red Cross, though, unfortunately, it hasn't just been one position. It hasn't just been drummer. It's been guitar player, keyboard player, and all sorts of different right. roles um, that we've had to fill. Um, but, um, you know, um, but so anyway, I, I understand, you know, they were very much like, um, you know, you know, it's not like you have a long-term commitment re- conversation with them. It's not like um, it's not like it's not like your first um, girlfriend, and <laughs> and after two weeks, everybody wants to know like, wait, where is where is this going? Um, <laughs> right. It it, yeah. it it it's almost like joining like a superhero team or something. You know, that's like there <laughs> there's different folks involved, and your buzz is okay. very. Uh, vocal about wanting to use the talents and abilities and instincts of the people that he's playing with, not have them like force a square peg into a round hole, which is always nice. Well, I wonder what it's like, the logistics of dealing with like the actual like superhero super team. Like how, I wonder how they work that out because it just, it's, <laughs> where's that comic book? <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, like who's managing all of those, uh, you know, they're, they're different, uh, you know, projects and interest because 
it does get complicated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we got a team. I got a team up scheduled on Tuesday. I can't. I can't do that. Oh no. I gotta get. Yeah. I gotta get a sitter for the kid. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like well, but you know, we have a League of Justice meeting on Tuesdays. Yeah. <laughs> you you got to make sure that, like, you know, everyone accepts the meeting invites and uh, you know checks right. the schedule. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, like, whoever is like. It's like the person who's most clever with like, you know, Google calendars or <laughs> iCalendars. It's like the de facto organizer who finds himself doing like these, you know, you know, the epic texts with five different people trying to figure out what you can put in the calendar and what you can't. Yeah, it's probably always bitching about it. Like, oh, God, why do I always get stuck doing this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, you're so good at it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. but i want to fight crime That's too amazing. <laughs> but so yeah so in 2000 i think i jammed with them for the first time in 2015 and then we started doing some shows in 2016 the melvins and i also played on their bases loaded record which i guess that probably would have been in 2015 and you know and it just kind of started this relationship that we're not really having the discussion about like i just described like, where's this going? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, <laughs> but it, it continued to go. And there's also been, like, situations where you did the, the double bass tour, where, where Jeff Pincus was playing bass also. So you had to kind of rethink yeah. Yeah. how or that then, fits or together. Then, uh, or then I find out, like, um, oh, yeah, Mark Arm's coming down here tomorrow. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, Mud Honey, they're going to come record. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. You know, well, great. Let's do it. You know, and um, so they've always got something brewing and that they want to challenge themselves with. And, um, you know, it's good. It, it's, it's been good for me to, um, there's been some good exercises there. Just good and fun and great. Yeah, know? yeah. So, I mean, you're, and you're coming at it from a different place, maybe, than, than, than others as well. Like were you really were you deeply familiar with the catalog beforehand? No, I mean I don't know if I was any more familiar than they are with my catalog. Sure, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean yeah, they didn't. Yeah, with me it wasn't like they went and farmed. Um, they didn't, you know. I wasn't. I didn't come from like a farm league of you know, you know, Melvin superfans. But um, right, but it makes more sense to have someone that you know, you can get along with, you know, it's a great player and you know, that knows how to tour and conduct themselves in a, in a band also. Sure. And it, and then for the most part, I think that, you know, we're, we've, we have a lot, I mean, I think a lot of their touchstone references are the same for me as well. Right. So there's that, you know, so I don't, you know, I mean, in terms of, I mean, and often they would say things like, well, don't listen to the record because I have no idea if we played anything like that anymore. Right. They, they've, I've talked about that with both of them and it's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's more like <laughs> that, that would be misleading. Like if you yeah. if you played the version on the record, then you'd have to reteach it to us. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and that's part of the, you know, them being living songs that change and grow and, and you know, it's the difference between the record and the yeah, live show. One of the- yeah, it's one of the ways of keeping yourself, um, you know, vital or plugged in and excited and on your toes. On your toes, I think. I mean, you know, and, you know, and it's also, 
I mean, I mean, I used to hate that when I was a kid. When I was like, why doesn't why don't they play like the record anymore? Like not with the Melvins, um, you know, my favorite bands growing up, like you know, uh, or whatever. Like the way Lou Reed, you know, the yeah. songs were unrecognizable. Yeah, be like, like, wait, is this which is this what wait, which song is this? <laughs> I could be wrong, but I I think this might be Sweet Jane. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, that always really annoyed me, but um, because but I think a lot of times those guys would I think it was jazz was ruining it or something because they they thought they were being jazzy. They would always like change the phrasing of the lyric and just you know cram the words at the end of the sentence or something in some stupid way that right. was keeping that was keeping them excited. But to me, it just sounded like bad jazz or something, you know. So I don't know, but. Um, but my point is, I think with I think that practice is safe in the Melvins' hands because they have better taste. Definitely, and there, there's definitely a, a sense of purpose that goes along. It's okay along. for them to take liberties with their own songs. It's not okay for for some classic rock artist to right. take liberties. <laughs> like when they do like the the medley that includes like the reggae part or something, where it's like, oh God, stop! No, don't do that. Oh, you mean uh, you must be talking about them. Um, uh, well, that's when. Uh, well, I mean, it has it in the song when, um, when, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I think it's um, "Live and Let Die." Um, <laughs> yes, Guns and Roses, Guns and Roses cover it, and then, um, and then Axel screams into the microphone, "A little reggae, yeah, give me some reggae, <laughs> give me some reggae." Oh man, so just. I guess I guess that's sort of like his. Um, does anyone remember laughter? Because everybody, knows, <laughs> right. everybody knows that one little like spontaneous, you know, uh, improv. Yeah. Um, Robert Plant, and I feel like everybody knows that one from Axel. Too. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's it's definitely uh, it's been memefied pretty well. Yeah, I could hear. I could. I could see like you know two hundred thousand people in like a stadium and sao paulo um you know all <laughs> yelling a little reggae together at the same time <laughs> but give us some reggae! <laughs> please don't give us any reggae please but the uh yeah with, with melvin's there's definitely a sense of purpose that comes on with the sense of adventure and um you know, I think that the, I think that holds true, and it's it's interesting from the perspective. You know, from my perspective, like I think you brought a lot of like the big rock energy to like the show because you're 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 playing the way that you play, and you, and you got it. And I thought that was fantastic, and it's something where it's like, oh, that's cool because I don't think I've seen that. Like it's like there's different kinds of players that bring different things to it. But I appreciated being a big fan of big rock and roll energy. I appreciated the big rock and roll energy that you've brought to the Melvins. Oh. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, um, well, that's just what I do. So I've, and then they're really big on, you know, trying to uh, empower the people they work with to do the best version of what they do right. with them. And, um, you know, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know, it's also an intimidating thing. You know, that's why I don't read that. I don't read the Melvin's chat boards and stuff because I know I get, I get pretty beat up, and I know that I would really, would really hurt my feelings because you know because it's 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 intimidating like to get out there to play, even though technically 
as a underground rock musician, I predate your heroes, Buzz and Tail. Right. I've been doing. <laughs> You've been actually been doing it longer. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing it longer. They went to my show before I went to their show, but um, but ultimately, who gives a fuck? And um, but but you know, it's still intimidating to go out there in front of you know a crowd that is so uh, dedicated to their right. to their favorite artist. And to go up there and to do it with any sense of purpose and confidence is, at least for me, I found challenging. Um, but but maybe you know people probably don't see that because I'm just up there and like trying to be in the zone and trying to free myself of the mechanics and just feel it and wherever that's going to lead me. Which I'll tell you. It can be very difficult with some of those weird Melvin's time signatures. Oh, yeah. It's some of not, them are nuts, man. Yeah, totally. It's, it's not easy to let your body move naturally when you're when you're playing on, you know, suicide in buzzes. progress or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you're when you're working with when you're dancing to Buzz's metronome, it's not always the <laughs> obvious, right. obvious, of, uh, obvious of steps. But um, but at any rate, you know. I mean, the thing for me is like, I just, you know, I feel like any job I've had, I mean, I've had lots, lots of different ones now and, you know, we don't have to go into it, but, you know, you mentioned Keith earlier. I mean, another thing, when Keith and I first started, before we were playing together and off, we were both scouting for record labels even. So, I mean, I've gone really far into other arenas of my work and, the idea being that, and a lot of times I've just been like, holy fuck, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. But then I find that if I, or I might also think, I don't want to do that. Like, ugh, like, you know, oh, someone's, you know, try to try to make a sound alike version of this Black Keys song from, you know, last year. Right. And maybe you'll get one you know, a mini Cooper commercial. And you might think like, Oh, that's soul zapping or whatever, or not cool or something. But I found that most of that, that negative, that negativity in my head is really just fear. And that once I get into it, if I find that I'm doing a good job at it, then I enjoy myself. And so with that in mind, I try to do the best fucking job I can do wherever, whatever it is, you know, and rock and roll obviously being, and then when with playing bass, it's like, well, okay, so that's my first love. So that's the easiest. I don't have to like talk myself into it it's easier, but still it's really important to me that I'm doing, you know, a good job that would be hard to replace me that there's, I'm being, that I'm doing something that, uh, displays what is uniquely me right and uh, and i think that um you know and so some of that's the way i exert energy on stage and um you know and i and and i, and I just think that it's really fun to be able to do that with the melvins because um that's what they're about as well that's another place that where we speak the same language easily and um you know, and I and I just feel like, well, look, you know, I've, I'm very grateful to be chosen, and, um, you know, and 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 the idea that like I would ever phone it in, you know, it's like, it's like Buzz, you know, I mean, that guy's that muumuu that he wears is is um it's made out of out of pretty thick corduroy, 
And, um, you know, it's fucking hot. It's <laughs> right. hot. I mean, I mean, literally, I mean, I guess, you know, metaphorically as well too. No, but, no, but like, yeah, uh, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy fabric also. Yeah. It's a heavy fabric over his entire body. And, and you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's got some meat on his bones, but it's like the, the guy has got endless energy and, there's no way I'm going to be on a stage watching the guy who's like essentially my boss work his ass off and um and and I'm not going to slot I'm not going to be a fucking deadbeat and you don't want to be the weak link. Yeah. Well, I'm not, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah, exactly. And I I'm definitely not going to uh and anyways, so luckily it's second nature to me anyways. It's actually great. It's like permission to be a ham because that's the worst thing. Cause, cause, cause that's, you know, that's what you're putting, making yourself in jeopardy of, you know, all the haters and the trolls are going to talk shit about you and, and every, you know, and you're being really extroverted, even though in your personal life, you might be a little bit introverted, but on stage you're, you're letting this other thing take you over. You're getting into the zone along with your bandmate and, the potential haters, you're giving them tons of ammunition to hate you. <laughs> you know? And sure. you can worry about that and get totally distracted and it can it can ruin your gig, or you can put it aside and 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 let that be someone else's business, you know. Well and Yeah, and and ultimately the Melvins have such a, a dedicated fandom that there, sometimes it seems like there's a, you know, what's the saying? A thin line between love and hate. It's like they, they <laughs> it's yeah. like they have their idea of what they want the Melvins to be. And like, nothing's ever going to be yeah. able to meet that idea. So you right. make yourself sure. crazy it's like, trying it's like, to. It's, yeah. Yeah. Right. So like, it's a thankless role to, to take on the new guy in the band because you're never going to, um, you, you, cause it, it you know, and just in those terms, it's thankless, you know, but it, 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 so if you're going to worry yourself about trying to um, please someone that you're never going to please, well, then, you know, you're, you're robbing yourself of all the fun you could be having in the moment. Totally. Okay. I, and I also think I identify with that mentality because I'm a Kiss fan. So and I, and it's so much fun just to tear Kiss up. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, but I think that. But I feel like I do that about Kiss much more intelligently than a lot of these trolls do about the Melvins. <laughs> oh, yeah, assuredly. Yeah, of course. Fine. <laughs> but that's fine. At its core, I understand where they're coming from and what that's about. Yeah, and, and it's coming from a place of fandom. And it, again, it's, it's something that I, I think you have the right approach that you shouldn't take a lot of it too seriously because it's – you know, at the end of the day, you're in the Melvins and they're not. So, you know, there you go. And I think the only time I took it really seriously where like it actually bummed me out was in Minneapolis when someone threw a, a tall boy um, and hit me square in the like a full tall boy, like a Paps, Paps Blue Ribbon, hit me square in the face at the um, at the um, and it's, it's the only time it's ever happened. And um, it, right. it was you, in, it was. 
I remember you talking about that the next day at the High Noon Saloon in Madison. I, right, yeah, I saw you in, in, in um, I, right, and I was still processing it. I was, I actually had a bit of a fallout from that because I misunderstood something that Buzz said after the show, and it took me a couple of days to really process it. And uh, because, um, but it happened at the First Avenue. And, uh, you know, which is a club I had played many times before, but I was always a support act. It's a pretty big room. It's yeah, like over it's a huge. Th- yeah. Yeah. It's a big room. And so it was a big deal for me to be part of an act that were the, um, the, the main attraction. And I was, and we were having a great show and I was really connecting. And then a Paps Blue Ribbon connected with my face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's it's not funny at all. No, but. it's funny. It was, I, mean, I was I designed that for you to laugh, so I'm glad you did. But, um, but you know, but the thing is, you know, and then and then, well, then so what happened later on that night? I remember I was embarrassed to tell the guys what had happened because because I I should have stopped the show. I think now I would, but at the time I'd only been playing with them for a year or two. And it was also sort of a transitional phase, like having the two bass players. I just didn't feel I didn't feel at liberty to stop the show, and right, and 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 the, the rest of the guys didn't stop the show. And I thought that they had, and I thought after the show that Buzz had said that he saw it happen. But what he said was he saw it on the ground. He didn't know what had happened. And the thing was, I was shocked because it hit me so hard. I thought that. Um, I thought I'd had an aneurysm or something. Oh, Jesus. Well, because it was just like to be in one frame of mind and this like really, you know, in the zone. Like it's just one of those nights when it was like everything you were trying to do with the instrument was working. And <laughs> Right. And then you get this big old bummer coming, like literally coming at yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, there's just some nights when like, you know, the feedback on the guitar, you can't get the feedback right. Or, you know, every time you're trying to do this one maneuver, just like, ah, the string gets caught on your finger or something. And none of that was happening. It was all just like, I went for that and I, ooh, that was a nine, that was a nine five. Ooh, that was. <laughs> right. You know, you're, you're yeah, a, yeah, you yeah. Know, your you internal scoreboard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. She got that 10.0 in the 1976 Olympics. Oh, like, bam! It was like nonstop, you know. And 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 then all of a sudden, I'm seeing stars like a fucking Warner Brothers cartoon, <laughs> and I had no idea what it was, you know. But I will say, and then, you know, and so I kind of like haphazardly walked to the front of the crowd and flipped, you know. You know, uh, you know, sort of very limply, like flipped off the crowd and then slunk back into my corner and played and then went into this whole other head space where it was like, oh, my God, everyone saw that. Wait, no one's even looking at me. Wait, wait, no, no one saw that. OK, well, what do you do? What do you do? You know, like and it was just like, you know, don't let it affect you. Don't let it affect you. It was, that's the chance that entered my head. But I still think nowadays I would have stopped and would have said, no, look, you know, now we get to play uh, Rat Out the Troll. And um, who is the fucking asshole that threw that? And, and you know, which is probably, you know, also like, from what I understand, Buzz tells me later that he's tried to do that before and it had no, you know, no luck because suddenly a bunch of people are pointing to like five or six 
<laughs> just people that they don't like that they want that they yeah. want to get in trouble. <laughs> well, and if you didn't see it happen, then there's nothing you can really do, you know. But at any rate, so you know, it's a little bit. I shouldn't be giving anyone too much, um, you know. Well, look, they thought. shouldn't be throwing stuff at you. I mean, flat out, like that's a dick move, and it's 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 not cool. No, and, I mean, I'm not, I'm a little intrigued as to what possessed them. I mean, sure, there's the part where it's like, okay, you know, um, you just love the band so much, and and there's a part of the band like you intersected with the band at a particular point in your life, and where the band was at that moment, and who you were at that moment has burned some sort of impression in your psyche and anything other than that is going to pale in comparison. And I get it. Like I'm, you know, I'm a human too. I've had that experience as I'm a rock fan also. And I think I've got a sense of what that feels like, but you know, but then to, um, to not only like maybe not appreciate someone, but then to like want to hurt them, and where you want to go with that, it's almost like, well, what did they do? What got you so pissed? <laughs> like, what was in my, I assume it's my movements. I assume it's like maybe like my, you know, and sexually ambiguous movements might have been too challenging or, or something, you know, for someone's like, you know, uh, you know, Cro-Mag mind. <laughs> right. Ah! You know. I don't know. You know. I would I would have I would have I would have invited the dialogue, you know, and in more comfortable surroundings I would have. Had it been a Red Cross show, I certainly would have. Um, and going forward with the Melvins, I think I would now too. And that's not an invitation. Don't get any <laughs> don't, uh, don't get any ideas, jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well I I'd, I'd, I'd like to think the average listener to the show is not gonna be someone that throws something at a at a musician, but right. you never know. It's not a junior troll begging for attention, but um, sure. But anyway, I don't know why I went on that. Obviously, I'm still processing it. But um, but there's something to be said. There's something interesting about filling other people's shoes and being yourself while also fulfilling that role. It's, you know, something interesting about it. I don't know exactly what is interesting about it, but I guess I. <laughs> That's what I'm. That's what I'm stabbing around trying to get to. Well, I, I certainly think it's interesting to to hear you talk, man, and, and I appreciate you spending so much time with me to to go through all this stuff. Yeah. It's been uh, it's right. been a treat. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a long one. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you have any listeners left, but um, <laughs> I think they were probably uh, winding this down now, right? Yeah, it, it's 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 the show. It's fine. Um, we we are, and I, I definitely appreciate your time. The last thing that uh, I, it's the only can question I ever have, but I always ask people why they do what they do. Why do I? Oh, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, I've got no other choices. <laughs> Or you could take that however you want. I mean, I just, in other words, it's it's what I have to do. Right. Well, you have a you have a long and uh, story discography, and I appreciate very much what you do and you uh, spending the time with me to talk about it, man. Sure, man. Thank you. I I enjoyed I enjoyed the I enjoyed the talk. So until next time, and uh, you know, stay safe, man. Okay, you too. Take care. All right, brother. Okay, bye.
And there he goes, Mr. Stephen McDonald. Love that dude. It's awesome. Good times. Uh, Stephen McDonald's a pretty easy dude to find on the internet. He's on Instagram, Twitter. Red Cross is uh, on those things as well. Facebook. Can you hear me now? You can find him with the Melvins uh, most times. And... Yeah. Uh, the name of the show is Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Is this thing on? It happens Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, 5 p.m. Pacific. RadioNope.com. Also, lots of other times <laughs> these days. <laughs> RadioNutron.com for the archives. There's a Patreon. Patreon.com. Slash Protonic Reversal. You get the episodes as soon as they come out. Everyone else has to wait a little bit. Signing off. Mr. and Mrs. America. And all the ships at sea. If you haven't already subscribed to it, uh, please consider hey, doing so. Dollar a month. Voice. Otherwise, subscribe to the main feed. Thanks for listening at all. Rate and review it if you feel so inclined. I've got... 50,000 watts of power. Live listeners, we got music on with music off coming up next. I wanna ionize the air. There's a ton of uh, amazing stuff coming up on radio now. I believe it's a Throbbing Gristle special. This microphone. A spotlight special. Think about you Into electricity. you hear me now? Anything else? Out on Route 128, it's dark and lonely. Stay got safe. got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the... It's the end of radio! The last announcer plays the last record! The last what? Leaves the transmitter! Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? If there's no one there to receive It's the end of radio As we come to the close of our broadcast day See?